Welcome. Today we're talking antitrust, and specifically we're going to be discussing what is arguably the biggest antitrust case in the United States in the past 25 years since the case against Microsoft back in the 1990s. So the U.S. government is going against Google, uh, the gigantic search engine company, and probably you've all heard about this. This has been in the news in the past couple of days. I think the trial is now in its second day, if I'm not mistaken, beginning yesterday. So first of all, welcome, James. Uh, it's a privilege to have you here to discuss this very important legal and technological landmark. How are you doing today? I'm quite well today, yes, but man, what a lawsuit, right? The yeah, yeah. The, the antitrust laws are so vague and um, people have criticized them so widely that really the Justice Department goes after the big company. You know, if you go back over the last 50 or 60 years, it's that company which is number one in its field that seems to be, even if it's a government-created monopoly. In my lifetime, we've had antitrust suits against AT&T, the big phone company, IBM. Um, and like you say, in the last uh, real anti big antitrust suit was in 1998 against Microsoft, in which the government prevailed, by the way, uh, at the very dawn of the computer business, the internet business, which seems great. Wasn't there also one against Bell at some point? Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 way back. Yeah, exactly. So big is bad. If you're big, see, like take Google, part of the thrust, we had opening statements earlier this week uh, on the uh, Google antitrust case, and the Google lawyer came out to defend himself. Um, the essence of the lawsuit is like this. Google controls about 80% of the searches being done on the internet, and they have been paying Apple and Samsung the big smartphone, smartphone, say that five times quick, smartphone providers to make it the default or to have it built in to their phone systems. So that when you buy an iPhone or when you buy a Samsung smartphone, it's built in right there as the default setting or as a built-in feature of the phone. Now, the, the fact that it's, yeah, and they have indeed paid lots of money to Apple and Samsung, billions of dollars, so that it will be built into their phone systems. But being built into the phone system is not any kind of coercive prevention from accessing other services. This morning, I actually went through a, a little experiment of my own. I used uh, uh, DuckDuckGo to find Yahoo and Yahoo to find DuckDuckGo. And of course, anyone can find Bing, if you, especially if you're a Microsoft uh, a customer, Bing is right there. But the point is, anyone can easily access and convert into their default uh, search engine uh, setting any of these other products. There's Bing, DuckDuckGo, you name it. One quote that I heard that one quote that I heard is that uh, another search engine is just four clicks away. That's all it takes. Four, four clicks, clicks away. Yeah. If that, if that, it took me about two or three clicks to get right to Yahoo, DuckDuckGo, Bing, all these other services that aren't Google. And um, you know, my wife was just telling me she uses DuckDuckGo first because it has some certain better features. You know, she'll use Bing if it has better features, and she'll, only then will she go to Google to, to for her search, even though it's built in to her uh, iPhone. Uh, that's possible. And even in that context, Google only controls about 80%, but 80%, you see, 
makes them the big bad monopoly. And the, diff, and the lawyer for Google made a really good point. People choose our product. They have other products available. Can, can we help it if eight out of 10 users are choosing our product? Uh, it's not as though we're coercively preventing them. And they are not coercively preventing them. There are certain services, for example, Google Maps, which I find to actually be the best in the business. On the other hand, Bing, as Daniel and I were discussing before the show began, it has superior services in terms of image searches and things like that. The, the consumer has choices out there. Um, and industry, this is such a young industry too. Industries go through various phases where there's a bunch of companies and then they consolidate. And that doesn't mean the end of the story either. And we're in the midst of and the other great point that the Google lawyer made earlier this week was that they're right in the midst of all kinds of technological innovations. Even as we speak, the landscape is changing from under the ground of, of computer provi uh, service providers. Um, and uh, to catch a dynamic developing high tech, you know, con this is an industry that's constantly changing to say that there's some kind of permanent competitive advantage, a coercive advantage, ignores the, dyna the dynamism that's actually going on right now. What, you know, uh, Yahoo had its own problems, for example, uh, in terms of security breaches a few years ago, um, right. things like that. Um, and uh, there are all kinds of other issues at play here. What we need to do, so long as there's no coercion, real coercion, is leave the industry alone. You know, I may have made the example before, and I'll give it again. Again, When I was a kid, there was no such thing as the Internet. It's true that 85% of people get their news and most of their information from the Internet these days. But, you know, the same thing was said about television when I was a kid back in the 1970s and television news was dominated by three, exactly three uh, network television uh, uh, news programs where 85% of Americans got their news and they were all pretty much the same tilted bias because the FCC regulations. That was because of the FCC regulations that had created much more of a monopolistic situation. It took cable television, CNN, and then Fox to come in to actually change television news in the 1980s and 90s. And uh, it was a free market innovation. It was technical innovations getting around a government regulation that was actually encouraging this television news monopoly. But compared to the 70s, our information choices on the computer today are infinite. We not only have television, we not only have cable television, we not only have newspapers and magazines, which have been around forever, we now have all kinds of sources on the internet. I can go to different websites to get the most radical views on just about anything. The amount of information that Google has made now available, the variety of sources just that Google has made available is so much greater than the number of information sources that existed, say, 30, 40 years ago. So it just seems bizarre and upside down. Another point I would make is connected to that point about the FCC. It's these government regulations that are really the problem, uh, whether our huge favor, favoritism being granted. You know, we were talking about how private uh, internet companies can engage in censorship. They're private companies. And right. interestingly enough, our friends on the left are the ones always reminding us, these are private companies that can't be censorship. And they're right about that. But wait a minute, what can be government coercion? Well, when government threatens, government threatens things like antitrust suits. And so if Joe Biden, uh, who runs the Justice Department that has filed the suit against Google, gives a little call to Google and says, hey, don't run that Hunter Biden story you guys, 
you know, downplay it. That's where the potential censorship comes in because Joe Biden can threaten them with the gun of an antitrust suit. That's the censorship that we should be worried about is this very kind of antitrust suit. That's where the government actually has a coercive gun over the companies and customers, by the way. Now, just to clarify something, this current suit against Google, when exactly was it filed? I I read somewhere that it was filed in 2020 under the Trump administration. Like Trump at the time had threatened to go after Google and the big tech companies. So uh, clearly Trump is no friend of uh, big, big companies and the free market. In fact, the whole investigation that preceded that happened under the Trump administration as Republican members of Congress were demanding action. So you've got the Republicans in Congress who are demanding action against these evil big tech companies. Shows you how far the Republicans have come in understanding the free market or censorship, by the way. So they're demanding the antitrust actions, the Republicans in Congress, and the Trump administration initiates this whole investigation from the outset. And it took years, yeah, to get us to this place. Um, even as the landscape has been changing from under them as the years of the recent years have gone by. Uh, absolutely correct. Our Rep Republicans don't understand this, and Republicans have badly declined in their ideological understanding of uh, freedom, rights, censorship, um, and their position on antitrust laws. The allegedly pro free market Republicans uh, are don't know the couldn't find the free market with uh, both hands if they tried, if I can use the analogy. <laughs> the, resp the response from Google, how effective do you think it is? Is it is it principled enough? Is it fundamental enough to be effective based on the arguments that you've heard so far from the Google lawyers? Well, in terms of being an effective lawyer on this case, it, it, it probably would be self-defeating to go after the morality, in the, right, correction, the immorality of antitrust laws. The judge is going to be making the ruling in this case, not a jury. And this is a judge who probably, you, you argue, hey, the antitrust laws are invalid and immoral. The judge is going to, uh, uh, those are the existing laws. Um, and so I would prefer, you and I would probably prefer a lawyer to go charging in there and saying, this whole antitrust regime is corrupt and evil. These laws are non-objective. And, uh, but of course we can't expect them to do that. And probably in a, the most effective defense is the kind of defense that they're mounting. Uh, that is to say, with an established uh, uh, precedent on these evil laws, even under that, we have done nothing coercive or illegal and simply paying phone companies to include us as a default or built into their phones is, is not creating a coercive monopoly. Um, and their defense is, look, you can easily access other computer services. Uh, we're not preventing any of that. Um, what we're doing is perfectly legal. Um, and I agree with that in that context. I don't see, I don't, in other words, even under the existing law, and that's probably what they have to argue, they're making at least a decent argument that consumers do have other choices, that they haven't done anything coercive, that people are voluntarily choosing to use their services, which is all true. People seem to prefer Gmail. People seem to prefer uh, Google Maps. There are certain Google features that the consumers have actually seemed to choose. So you're going to tell as the Google lawyer says, what are we saying? Consumers, you don't know what you're doing. You don't, you know, you're crazy for preferring. That is, that is in effect what they're saying. Right. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, wor I'm worried because when you have a, a good argument, a rational argument coming up against non-objective laws, immoral right. laws, 
the conclusion is by no means, it's by no means a foregone conclusion. And I've often wondered, why is it, what, what would it take to actually challenge the, the validity, the constitutionality of these laws? Would it take something like a class action lawsuit with many, many big companies? What would it, what exactly would be, would be required for that? To get the antitrust laws to be declared unconstitutional, and in my view, they are clearly unconstitutional. That's my read, plain meaning of the Constitution. But that's the way I read uh, section, uh, section 8 of Article 1. Uh, there is no such power to do any such thing granted to the Congress of the United States. They cannot regulate the economy. They, the only aspect of the economy that they may regulate are the, are the regulation of trade between states and it is called interstate commerce. That phrase, it, it was narrowly meant. It had that qualification on it. It dramatically restricted the economic regulatory authority of Congress. But of course, that has been thrown right out the window by both right and left jurists in the 20th century. The current conservative court with a bunch of Trump appointees on it would, would agree I, they would never go anywhere near as far as you and I would go in terms of undoing all of that evil precedent that struck out the word interstate from the interstate commerce clause in the Constitution. Before, it used to be only the ferries, the ships, or the trains themselves that carried goods between, or the tariffs that states would put up against each other that were the subject of interstate commerce. But then it expanded, 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 and now they struck out interstate commerce and anything that connects to the economy at all. If it at all in any way affects, even slightly affects uh, uh, the economy, then, it, then apparently Congress has the power to regulate it. Although the recent Supreme Court has cut that back, they've now started limiting, <laughs> have found some outer limits to the interstate commerce clause have been once more discovered, but only in about the last 20 years, mind you. Have they even said that there's some limit to this? Uh, but we're still nowhere near the point of true justice and understanding of the constitution were obviously things like all of the securities laws and all of the all of the uh antitrust laws are obviously pernicious and unjustified under the constitution absolute violations of the ninth and tenth amendments while we're at it so we've, even our so-called originalists on the supreme court those who, who who claim to understand the original intent of the document of the founding fathers even they don't really understand would, well, the excuse they'll give you is, well, we have now precedent from previous Supreme Court, and that's now strong binding precedent, even if they read the plain meaning of the words wrong. So they'll talk out of both sides of their mouth, and they'll say plain meaning trumps, and that's when we can overturn precedent. But that's not the sort of precedent they're likely to overturn right now. Most Americans think the government should regulate the economy. That's the hellish situation we're in. And as long as that's the case, the Supreme Court's not going to take on something like taking out half of the federal establishment as a violation of the Constitution. I, I don't see that happening in our lifetimes, no. Uh, as simple and true as it is, though. I've often wondered why businesses don't put up more of a fight against the antitrust laws. I, I have two theories about this. Is, is there some sense in which the really big companies actually benefit, if not directly from the antitrust regulations, then maybe from other government regulations that serve to shackle their competitors? So in other words, they don't want to bite at the hand that feeds them but beats them at the same time. Okay. And then, of course, the other, the other possibility is simply the whole 
you know, 2,500 years of Judeo-Christian altruist morality, which is so deeply ingrained, even in the, the CEOs and the boards of directors of these big companies, that they, they just won't challenge that kind of ideology. Do you think there's they don't a little bit both sides of that argument? Yeah, well, the what, first thing is they don't have the morality to defend it. They have these self-doubts, like you point out. They are not confident in their own moral position. The profit motive has not been defended properly. Economic freedom has not been properly defended properly, not been defended at all, in effect. And so these companies are morally cowed. And you're right, they use them. They use all kinds of regulate. There's a whole raft of regulations that help keep out competitors. So if we complain about this one, we, uh, we can't use the ones that help us keep out competitors. Most big companies that are regulated, of course, there's a revolving door between the regulators and the companies themselves so that we can, that's in effect what the regulations are mostly, uh, I think, the ulterior motive, at least behind them, is to keep out competitors. They don't make the Food and Drug Administration doesn't make us perfectly safe from drugs, does it? <laughs> By no means. And what is what it ha is happening is big pharmaceutical companies are using it to help keep out new entrants to the market. And while we're on this topic, you know, we talk about any uh, the censorship and conservatives that run all the reasons why they were even in the Trump administration demanding antitrust action conservatives demanding antitrust action against big tech was because they thought that they were biased, but they're private companies. Of course, they can't engage in censorship. Well, what becomes censorship? When the government points a gun and says, do this, say this, or else. We've had instances where the Biden administration simply calls up the, the Twitter, Facebook, and says, you will not run this story. Well, even as they're saying, oh, by the way, guys, we're looking into you for antitrust. So we have a gun pointed, a regulatory gun pointed at the head of uh, the Internet providers. And then the Biden administration makes a friendly suggestion about, you know, not covering the Hunter Biden story around the election. Suddenly they all tell that lie on behalf of the Biden administration and the DOJ. Huh. Even as the, the DOJ and the Biden administration is considering an antitrust suit against Twitter and Facebook. Well, that's exactly the government force that can turn the situation into censorship. This is the censorship, my friends on the right. It's when you get the government to threaten action against these big companies. Now, they're the agents of censorship, not the protectors of free speech. Talk about getting it all backwards. It's this kind of antitrust suit that is the kind of real source of censorship if there is any censorship of <laughs> it's when uh musk can take over twitter and turn it into x that's how you get different ideas out there that's how the free market works and the free market of ideas i know there's a lot of criticism of trump i or musk i don't agree with a lot of what trump uh, musk <laughs> i keep doing that what it's musk is saying i get confused too <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but, but the, the absolute truth, though, is, is that I do not uh, like everything Musk says or does by any means. But on the other hand, if you want to mix it up in the social platform world, you get other people to buy it and it becomes a competitive thing. And that's what it is. And consumers make choices. Um, that's the world of the free market. Uh, anything else is the censorship. The minute the government comes in with a gun, and it, it doesn't matter what the regulatory gun is, so long as they have a regulatory gun pinned to someone's head, you will do it this way. Let me suggest that's exactly why the three major television networks in the 1970s 
produce such a uniform, bland product. They were under the regulations of the Federal Communications Commission that had a fairness doctrine and said, you're going to do it our way because the airwaves need to be used like a public service. It's not private property. When you have that attitude and the gun permanently pointed to the media provider's head, there is a kind of censorship that's going on and shutting up uh, the people involved. Um, that's what I fear. I don't fear a company that voluntarily has 80% of a market share. That by itself doesn't tell me anything except that consumers are preferring certain Google products over other products. If I'm wrong, but wasn't the original Sherman Antitrust Act passed under a Republican government? Well, yeah. The first great trust buster in American history was Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican. The Republicans were actually the first ones to sort of buy into a bunch of progressive ideas and uh, uh, jump on the progressive bandwagon. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt's a classic example. Uh, famous Republican on Mount Rushmore <laughs> uh, was the was the famous trust buster. And it was all designed, the original antitrust thing in America uh, 130 years ago was all designed to get John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil. It was for one company. He really did start controlling 80, 85, 90% of the petroleum business in the United States. But how did he do that? He did that by cutting prices. As the quality of the product kept going up, the availability kept going up, he kept cutting prices. So the consumer got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper petrol. <laughs> That's how he got the, his market dominance. So when you break up Standard Oil, what's the immediate effect of that? Well, that comes to a sudden halt. That comes to a sudden halt. Now you've got all these other competitors out there. And are you really protecting the consumer? When the only way that John D. Rockefeller got such dominance of the petrol industry in, in America in the late 1800s was because he was providing ever cheaper and better products. That's not a coercive monopoly, friends. It should never have broken up. The law should never have come into being. Um, it was unjustifiable. No, no, John D. Rockefeller should have been given a medal, should have been given an award. They say he's you know, just for inflation. He was the world's first billionaire. Well, he was getting a teeny little fraction of the, 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 the monetary benefit that he was providing the world in giving them petroleum, cheap petroleum for the first time. Um, a small price to pay. It seems to me John David Rockefeller should have asked for more money because of the marvelous transformation of the world that he made possible. Instead of being, uh, you know, vilified uh, for it, he should have been praised as the man who gave us all cheap petroleum. Instead, his company was broken up and he was hailed as a, uh, dismissed as a robber baron. What sort of conditions would be necessary, intellectual and political, for these laws to eventually be challenged and repealed? What would it take? It would take a philosophical re-education. It would take people having a different moral understanding of the role of government. And uh, I went to law school, and I can tell you, I was the almost inevitably the only one, you know, somebody say, oh, do you think this violates the Interstate Commerce Clause? Do you think this violates this? I would be just about the only one. I would, so it clearly, Professor, it violates the plain meaning of the words. And if you doubt me, just quote Thomas Jefferson or James Madison. No, 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 well, that's the blah, 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 blah. conditions of change is a living document. People have come to a better understanding. Uh, about 100 years ago, uh, was it Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. on the Supreme Court said that whatever else you people argue, uh, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations was not written into the Constitution. In fact, capitalism was written into the Constitution. Economic freedom, property rights, they're there. 
and they were meant to be there by the framers. And when we have 20th century justices 100 years ago saying, nope, it isn't about property rights. It isn't because that huge, you know, those founding fathers were all about keeping their property. Uh, and so we can dismiss them and their attitudes. That entire philosophical framework has to be rejected and that has to change before anyone recognizes uh, how far we've come from the plain meaning and obvious intention of the framers of the Constitution. But all of these antitrust laws are about the worst. In my view, they violate the Constitution on many fronts, not just in a, uh, going beyond the Interstate Commerce Clause's ability, uh, the power grant to Congress to regulate, but also things law. Just due process requires that laws not be arbitrary or subjective. Uh, uh, the Eighth Amendment requires that excessive fines and punishments not be in, imposed. Men have gone to jail. Respected, res, respected senior business people have committed suicide and gone to because they were given jail sentences for antitrust cases and stuff. That is a violation of all kinds of constitutional provisions in my mind. Uh, at, at, starting with the due process clause. You don't even know if you're in violation of the antitrust laws. No expert could even tell you beforehand whether Google is gonna win or lose this case. I would have to do, in fact, it's my political hat, not my legal hat that I'll put on to tell you that Google is likely to lose because a judge is gonna make this decision. And the judge probably already knows, well, geez, 80% and these you know, sweetheart deals to get Google built into these phones. Uh, uh, well, that must be a monopoly. So well, I'm predicting you, you negative. Just my last question. I was going to ask for your prediction about how this case will turn out. And unfortunately, predicting my a negative result. I am predicting a negative result. The government has been gunning for Google and they're the big guy on the block. And just being the big guy on the block puts a target on you. And because we all know big is bad. Uh, success, even if you've earned the success, <laughs> is no defense. Even if it's your customers are all there voluntarily, it's no defense. So uh, those are the kind of questions that need to be changed in our moral legal landscape of thinking before we're going to get any real improvement on this. And I, I maybe maybe I'll be surprised, but I think Google is probably going to go down. Yeah, and it'll be a sad And what they could do is find the millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe billions of dollars, because there have been billions paid between Google and these phone companies, for example, uh, or they could break them up like they did with Standard Oil. Yes, I, I heard that that's, that's definitely, uh, I forget what the actual term for that is, but they're, yeah, one of the one of the things that, one of the possible outcomes of this is that they might actually break up the company. Just so like we'll they did with Standard Oil. They uh, the the first first uh, antitrust case of all. They broke it up into several companies: Chevron, Standard Oil of California, Standard Oil of, and so there were a bunch of different uh, Standard Oils. Now they could do the same with Google and turn it into three or four different companies uh, that are forced to do the different services that Google provides, different you know, separately. Yeah. So I see we have just a couple of minutes left. So let's quickly check in with Daniel. Do we have any super chats, comments from our listeners, and also announcements for other shows today? We have a super sticker from Jonathan. Thank you so much. Also a super sticker from Jeff. Thank you so much. And about the upcoming shows at 6 p.m. UK time, which is in two minutes, we have the reality show on defending against the unseen enemy. Uh, link is in the chat. And then at 10 p.m. UK time, we have Life on Earth with Robert and Amy Nasir on China and the real world out there. Wow, sounds intriguing. Oh, thank you very much, that's Daniel. <laughs> and thank you very much, James, for sharing your legal and economic knowledge on this 
very serious case, a landmark case, which, as you said, looks like it might not end very well. But we'll we'll continue following this case and providing updates in the future. So thank you once again, James. Thank you to all our viewers and supporters. Well, we'll see you very soon. And until then, I wish you all the best of premises.